Welcome to the Feminine Principle Podcast, heart-centered conversation for soul-centered women who are on a path of self-discovery. I'm your host, Nicola Lucy, shamanic practitioner, shadow and soul integration coach, and the creatrix behind the Feminine Principle, supporting women to redefine the relationship they have with themselves, others, and Mother Earth through the magic hidden in their unconscious. For more information, please visit thefeminineprinciple.com. Welcome, ladies, to the next episode in the Feminine Principle podcast series. And tonight I'm joined by the beautiful Imelda Ronquist, who is an international teacher of shamanism and sacred art and the author of two books, The Natural Born Shamans, A Spiritual Toolkit for Life, Sacred Art, A Hollow Bone for Spirit, Where Art Meets Shamanism. And Imelda has also presented her work and wisdom on the Shift Network and Sounds True, as well as on TV and the Shamanism Global Summit. She divides her time between the UK, US, and Sweden, and has just finished her third book, Medicine of the Imagination, Dwelling in Possibility, which will be published later in the year. That's welcome, right. Welcome, Imelda. Such a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, you and your beautiful ladies, your beautiful group. And so, please do share with us. We've all been waiting in anticipation in a work as a form of activism. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, in our regular outside world, there is a lot of focus on, you know, activism in the external sense. And it is absolutely necessary. Like we need to put pressure on politicians. We need to make people aware of causes and things that are going wrong. And there is an awful lot of activism that needs to be done. So it's, you know, very, very important. And activism can bring real change. You know, we know that from history. But in my opinion, the external activism out there in the world needs to be matched by inner activism. And that is doing our inner work, doing our shadow work. And these sort of problems and things we encounter outside us, we also find them inside ourselves. And in a way, that is the immediate place to start work because it is within us. Um, so we can work with it anytime. And I truly believe that unless everyone alive today commits to doing that work we're not going to see the lasting changes in the world we need to see so personally i'm an advocate for teaching this in all schools i would put it on the primary and secondary school curriculum and even university curriculum unfortunately i have not had that influence people have not taken my suggestion but that's what i'm pushing for Yes, that's a really great concept, which is, you know, so we've seen the movement of putting meditation in schools, mm -hmm. um, but now also bringing this self-awareness and really working with that with the, young, with the young people. Because if they shift it on their level, then obviously we're going to be, we're going to make massive moves very, very quickly. Exactly. And let's face it, they are going to be the doctors, the politicians, the nature keepers, the earth keepers of the future. And it's very nice if you see some children right here on the screen, <laughs> see Catherine's children. Um, you know, so it's wonderful that they are here because that's what it is all about. It's not only about the world that we live in, it's also about the world we're going to leave for those who come after us. So... And imagine now if they would learn how to use their imagination correctly and how to do fearless shadow work, you know, it would immediately change their relationships with all the children and people around them. And imagine that such a generation would become the leaders of our world. 
I mean, you know, I often dream about what the world might be like if that happened. Yes, um, and that shift. So the children, for example, um, even for us in this moment, we've seen how activism, so I think one of the most um, important movements that we've seen recently is the one for climate change, which is Extinction Rebellion. And, you know, I see a lot of people going out and it's great that people get together, but then um, how does that kind of reflect back to us? Because we've got a lot of people going out with all their banners, but then, and they're involving their children. Um, yeah. But then if they're not making them aware of what's going on on the inside, how can we kind of make that shift? Yeah, if we do not make the inner changes indeed, and also, if you do not bring that change, like, you know, we also know that unless we learn from history and unless we make decisions from a different place, history will keep on repeating itself. And I know that there's a lot of fear around that at the moment. We're seeing a lot of scenarios in the world where people think, have we not seen this before? You know, didn't we learn from this when it happened other times? You know, like in living memory, we just had the, uh, you know, the Holocaust uh, memorial the other day. And I think that's, you know, like listening and to some of these accounts and reading what people said, I think that's the overriding message that people have to learn from this. Like, you know, also like those people who died at tragic death, we cannot bring them back, but we can give them the gift of really learning something from their experience and making a different world now and making a different world for our children. I think that's the most important work of our time. Yes. And so as adults, whether we've got children or not, how can we really bring that um, work and that knowledge and that self-awareness to the younger generations? Well, I've already talked about curriculum and, you know, like teaching it to people. But I think also, you know, bringing it into our everyday relationships. I think that shadow work should be like brushing our teeth or washing our hair or whatever. It's like a form of spiritual and psychological hygiene. And... Um, with my students, I always say, it's not just something you do from time to time. It needs to always be going on. It's like a script. It's like, you know, like under your own breath, all day long, you're going and say, oh, oops, I need to look at that. Or, oops, that person just reflected something at me that I need to look at. We do not do that. We're going to be projecting everything out. And, you know, it is a fact in psychology that whatever we cannot own in ourselves, we see it very well in other people, like we project it out. So meaning, if I cannot have only said that I am that I am angry, I'm going to be encountering a lot of angry people who are really like showing me that I need to look at the anger that is within me. So I feel that there needs to be this constant communication between the internal world and the external world. And even the uncomfortable things that happen in our world are always an invitation to go within. I mean, you can like see your own soul, your own psyche, like a landscape you know, or a garden, as it were, and you can go right there. You can pick litter, you can plant seeds, um, you know, you can meet other people there and have dialogues with them. Um, like anything is possible in that sort of garden that is your imagination. And yes, it, this is a really interesting point to pick up on because something that you mentioned when we were organizing this and something that I put on the webpage, which was, you know, looking at kind of like the mass murderers you know, looking at those um, aspects of society that we really don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. And even those people, you know, they have so much to teach us about what is hidden in the self. 
Yes, that's what in my upcoming book I've called a homeopathic dose of psychopathic medicine. <laughs> like some people may never like read a book just because that phrase is in it. But, um, you know, I absolutely believe that there is such a thing as constellation work, family constellations work pioneered by Bert Hellinger. And there is very much believe that like, like all of us human people form a constellation and we all stand in a unique position. And standing in that unique position like comes a certain awareness and perspective. But no one has the full perspective. You know, we need all of the perspective of all the different people. So there is a kind of like constellation that seems to repeat itself in like, you know, it's like your family of origin. It is like, so, you know, with maybe your family of friends that you create for yourself. It is like in training groups you might attend or like any sort of groups or communities, even activism groups that come together, you know, where a group comes together, there is a, you know, a constellating of these kind of like archetypal patterns, if you like, these like blueprints deeply wired into the human psyche. And then you see that, you know, people will start like playing their roles. And then also because we human beings, you know, we get afraid and rightly so. I mean, I'm not promoting serial killers or psychopaths, not at all. Just saying the fact is that they exist. And at the moment we've not found a way of making them not exist. You know, in a percentage of the population, people are born that way. So the question then becomes, you know, can even they teach us something? Or people who have those tendencies, can we work with them and meet them in such a way that their unique talents and skills can still be put to some kind of use? Like research has been done that psychopaths can be put to very good use in say, you know, like the military. And I don't mean as killing machines, but I mean as people who do like strategy, people who need to keep a cool head, um, you know, under very, very stressful circumstances. A normal human being would buckle under the weight of it. But actually a person who is a psychopath can keep that completely cool head and can keep their focus on what the actual priorities are. So there are actually certain jobs out there where, you know, a good dose of psycho psychopathy is actually of use. And that sounds very counterintuitive because like, there's like so many things we'd like to eradicate in the human world. And of course, you know, if I could, you know, if I had the, mag the magic wand, you know, yes, I too would like to do away with psychopaths and, you know, any form of killing or murder and aggression. But like in reality, is that does not seem to be the case. I think we need to find a more creative way of working with what we have and the human potential that's locked into that, if that makes sense. Yes. And also what's very interesting is that, you know, I come across this a lot in my own work, but looking at those archetypes, for example, the murderer, you know, we automatically judge the, the murderer for the act that it's committed. Mm -hmm. However, when we look back, we've not always reincarnated as good people. We've always, yeah. There is some element of bad, if we're going to use the labels good and bad, because neither exist. But in the family line even, going back through the generations, doing the ancestral healing, is that there has been murderers and there have you know, yeah. through colonization, through war, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By looking at this, we can then really start to see and develop a deeper understanding of trauma and how it's created. Yes, that, but also, you know, I'm glad you're speaking of the ancestors now, that, you know, we live in a world where you know, and I'm just like researching this for another book I am uh, writing at the moment, where like a decision was made by the church fathers, like around the year 1100, 
that uh, any kind of ancestor worship was to be stomped down on and rooted out because the church wasn't comfortable with that. So in any place where, you know, Christ Christianity is a major religion, that's going to be a feature. So kind of like we pushed our ancestors away, like our relationship with the ancestors were consciously and deliberately broken and stomped on and replaced by very, well, old ways of thinking. Like when you, you know, when like, well, the devil was introduced, there wasn't the devil before. So a lot of really, well, dubious, I think, cultural material came in. Um, but the thing is, if we start doing ancestral work, work again, like our ancestral, ancestral lineages stretch such a long way back that everything we find in the human constellation today, just like looking at the news or seeing what's going on in the world, you don't need to go that far back to find all of these things in your own ancestral constellation as well. And then the thing is, because, you know, the fact that we do not like own or honor our ancestors does not mean that these ancestors are necessarily happy in the other world or that the issues they carried will go away. I mean, they stay in the ancestral field. So the only way of them working with that and making things lighter and less burdened in your own family and in your own psyche is to make that commitment to ancestral healing work, ongoing ancestral healing work, along with that shadow work we're just talking about. And there is a lot of shadow work in ancestral healing work. You know? Yes. Yes, it's been very fascinating because going back through that ancestral line and seeing the atrocities which were committed by members of the family, um, but also being oppressed, you know, so we go back to that kind of colonization kind of um, concept. Um, but we've all been part of it. It's part of our, it's part of our tapestry. Yes. And also we have been on both sides. That's what, what I always find. If I either look at previous lifetimes, you know, that I believe I've had, or if I look at the ancestral field, like ultimately these two lines of work, they behave the same way, these two fields. And then you sort of realize sometimes I have been the oppressor and sometimes I have been the victim and sometimes I've been a woman and sometimes I've been a man. And sometimes I've been in Northern Europe where I am today and sometimes I've been born in a very different part of the world. So also in doing that work, I find that a lot of the divisions we impose, like male, female, you know, white, black, uh, child, adult, uh, oppressor, victim, you know, these things start dissolving if we go far enough back and we go within ourselves and we work with all of that because then you know all of the this whole constellation of possibilities is right there again and we realize that we have lived all of these things and knowing that uh, also makes it easier not to judge people too severely if you can own within yourself this is within me this is in my ancestral field you know it really changes the way you judge other people if that makes sense yeah Yes, because also judgment, when we judge other people, that's simply coming from our own lack of perspective of the totality of self. Yeah, it often does. Yeah. And so these aspects, you know, and I think this is one of the things which is most fascinating is that when we do do the shadow work and we do engage on that level of going right back through the family line, et cetera, et cetera, and not just um, bloodlines, but also the spiritual lines as well, Oh, yes, yeah. We're able to see that totality that we are these multi complex beings with so much potential. 
Yeah, exactly. And also that we are so much more, as you say, I think it's an important point. We're so much more than our like biological family. Some people really get on with their biological family. Other people struggle with their biological family. But in a very real way, we're also in spiritual lineages. You know, the people, or maybe the people who are our teachers or the people who are key figures in our life or the people we admire. Like we're actually in so many circles. We're in so many constellations. And that the things we're not going to find necessarily in our family of birth you know we can find them like elsewhere and it has as much of a place and a validity in that inner landscape is equally valid yes yes because um you know i just know in my own story even the family that i've been born into i don't feel part of but yet i can see the weave and the thread going back mm. and how it still affects me because i've been born into that family yeah yeah but that's the other thing as well, that in our culture today, we think we can walk away from our ancestors. And sometimes when I've talked to people about, you know, ancestors in general, people say, they're long dead, why should I care? Or another thing I get when I say, well, really, we need to bring back a form of honoring of ancestors. It was the, in earlier times, it was the pivot. It was the, you know, it was the axis on which the universe turned because it was believed that there wouldn't be blessings and good things in this world if we did not like honor the ancestors and what they had given us. So we're kind of breaking a cycle of reciprocity. And so then when I say that, people will then always say, oh, I had some right old awful ancestors, you know, I met some of them before they died. I want nothing to do with them. You know, and then you have to take that whole discussion and say that, well, if you're open to the idea that they may continue to evolve on the other side of the veil, just as they were trying to do, only in as far as they were able, you know, in this world, um, you know, like maybe if you connect with them now, you're still going to sort of, you know, they're not going to be exactly who they were. And then there's also the fact that all of us have a kind of totality of soul. We have a higher self outside space and time that is much larger than ourselves here, you know, in this world. And we can also choose, we do not feel safe connecting to the person. We can certainly connect to that. We can call it a higher self, a sacred self. People use different words. But when you connect on the level of soul to the divinity and the totality of that other person, then there can always be an encounter. Yes, yes, a deep shift. And yeah. you know what's uh, what's interesting is that you know bringing that um, shadow work into our day to day life and seeing how we are interacting with each other, and you know each person has something to reflect back to us. It's exactly mm. the same on the ancestral line because if there was a, a you know an auntie or an uncle or somebody that we didn't like then obviously we are carrying some of that energy that still needs to be healed yeah exactly so that's exactly it so where we hold uncomfortable feelings or where something really triggers us or makes life difficult the gift is that it tells us where there is work to be done and then you know, of course if we want to get away from the discomfort and you may want to like run from it from it and slam the door on it but that's really a train missed or an opportunity missed because it's in these kinds of you know where things get uncomfortable that's where the opportunity is to really go in and learn something or do something and i've had that in my own family like i had like one uncle who died two years ago and the whole family always said, oh, he's like such a loner, he's antisocial. And like a lot of it was projected onto him just because he didn't want to like, you know, be with other people the whole time. 
And then after he died, I had some dialogues with him. And I realized that actually there is an awful lot of that uncle that still lives in me. And probably in the family, you know, if you look at all the different personalities, I'm the one who's most able to understand like where this man was coming from. And I really had to like say that to him after death. Go in and say, you know, actually, I want you to know, I know you felt misunderstood, but just through the circumstances of my own life, I do understand, or I think I do understand, you know, like why you made certain choices and felt a certain way. And then the moment that you sort of, you know, say that in a ceremony or, you know, you light a candle and you talk to the ancestors at an ancestor gallery, from the moment I do that, you really feel something settling into place. There's a kind of peace that comes from that. Yes, and also because, um, you know, learning and working with the ancestors, but also doing the shadow work in this, in, you know, the day-to-day life, but understanding, especially going through the ancestral line, understanding why those decisions were made and why that trauma happened and what caused mm-hmm. that person to behave in a certain way. Yeah. To expand our level of consciousness, but also our um, compassionate self. Mm. Yes, and also just to say, it's not that our compassion itself doesn't have boundaries. And, you know, even when we step away from judgment, we still operate discernment. I'm not advocating that absolutely anything is fine. You know, I operate boundaries. There are things I will not get involved in. So, like, you know, so I think it's very important to say that it's not like a kind of like woo where anything goes. I'm not, you know, I'm not promoting that. But it's still where you get to a place, you know, where where you say kind of on the level of soul I know where this person came from on the level of soul I understand what's going on here I may not want it in my own private home the whole time or I may not want to expose my children to it that's a different matter there's where I draw a boundary but like um, for me the task is always to understand and say but but you know this is still a human being and we don't really know the traumas that have shaped a human being. So, you know, we need to sort of bear that in mind as well. And just sort of say, you know, like what has shaped this human being? How has this human being arrived in the place where they're behaving like this? Or, you know, and just rather than just saying, oh, they're awful people, but actually investing the time and energy to make that journey. Yes. Yes, very fascinating. And so when we engage as inner work as a form of activism and we really start to um, expand our awareness and we start to engage with our own inner process on a much more wider level, how can that really help us then um, take um, that, um, instigate that massive shift that we need on a global scale? So for example, climate change, okay? So I'm just going back to Extinction Rebellion. Um, how can that really help us to redefine the relationship that we have with Mother Earth? Well, I think it's a really, really huge job, both in the external world, as it's proving to be, but also in the internal world. Because at the moment, we really, really look at that. You know, even in in the real world, in the external world, it's like we have to look at all of our choices, you know, what do I own, what do I eat, how do I transport myself around the world, uh, and how do I, you know, provide all of these things for my children as well. And um, it's actually pretty hard to lead a really, you know, like, like a life with a very small carbon footprint that's very ecologically sound. So whenever, so, you know, I do that work, I realize just how many shortfalls I have and I am working on it, but there are so many areas where actually I feel I'm not doing too well. And my children will say, mom, you could do better. I mean, yeah, you're right. As a family, we need to do better. You know, this is true. So that is the whole sort of external side of it. 
and also that it is in so many little things, you know, even the whole the consumerist thing. You know, we buy things we don't really need. We buy clothing we may only wear twice. Or we give things to a charity shop thinking it's going to a good place. You know, in the US you say thrift shop. But I was reading recently like 40% of what is in charity or thrift shop actually goes to the dump because they cannot sell it. So even sort of sending things to charity is not an ultimate solution for anything. So, you know, there are so many, it's like a full-time job almost if you want to do it properly. And that's before we even start working on the internal level. But then also on the internal level, we feel, you know, that we have polluted waters in our ocean and think of all that plastic that uh, the whales are choking on. Water is also like our own emotions. Where do I still hold toxic emotions? Like where in my inner landscape, you know, are are, you know, life forms choking on, you know, plastic or pollution or, you know, things I still hold on to that serve no more. So along with developing a smaller carbon footprint and like owning less things and decluttering and all of that, Marie Kondo, um, I also like inside myself need to do the work of unraveling all of this. Why do I still hold on to this like memory or I still have a pocket of pain there? Does it still serve a purpose? Do I still have something to learn? Or is it maybe time that I ask for the blessing of forgetfulness now and that I release it for once and for all? So the work to be done on the inside is as daunting and enormous as the work to be done on the outside, but they must go hand in hand. Yeah, and I think this is a very important point because when we talk about the emotions, so for example, um, there's a lot of dense energy in regards to anger and rage, and we see Mm -hmm. this... continuously being acted out in the external in our relationships and then obviously in the political realm and uh, uh, religion etc etc but then when we look at the ang- the anger on the inside you know if we if we are working with that anger and we are reacting to it unconsciously then that's even a part of the pollution it's part of that toxic and pollution it, that we're experiencing. Pollution, but also being human beings are often not aware of what they are reacting to. You know, human beings get triggered. I mean, I do it myself all the time. I, I do not float above any of this. I'm deep in it, you know. But, um, you know, I observe that for people who are like not walking in committed spiritual path and engaging in very deep self-reflection, people often think when they get triggered, meaning when something really blows up for them, that they think now... I am right, and I've hit a point of truth because I feel it so strongly, which is actually not right. Because when you get triggered, what it really means is all stuff that's coming up. You know, someone may have said something relatively mild, you know, like an outside observer might think that wasn't so bad. But because maybe my father said that to me, like for 20 years when I still lived at home, uh, you know, like I have an enormous reaction to it. But like the reaction I'm having is not actually in proportion to what is going on here in the moment with a colleague who just makes, you know, a comment that's not intended maliciously. So it's also like, you know, doing that work of really like, you know, mapping what our reaction patterns are and especially mapping, you know, where, where do things get intense for me? Like where do I get angry or you know, who or what really annoys me to do, you know, what are the things I just cannot stand? I can barely bear to be in the room with it all of these things are not things to avoid necessarily uncomfortably no they're all things like they tell us they're like road signs telling us where we have more inner work to do 
And then sometimes we need to do the uncomfortable work of really sitting with it. And, you know, I do that, you know, try to do that quite a lot when I most have the tendency to run off and I want to not be near something or in a situation. I force myself, get out the notepad, I sit still, and I say to myself, I'm going to make the commitment to stay with this. I'm going to make the commitment to be uncomfortable, but I shall sit with this until it dawns on me what's really going on here. And then you find it unfolds like a journey because you can move through it. And then once you get to the other end of that, it's like, like wow, you know, there is fire inside. Yes. And yeah. I think that's also when we reach that wow moment, when we've gone through something so deep, and which can seem very dark and ominous, but we've come out the other side, that's really when we feel the potential of our own magic and our own power, that we've actually engaged with that. Yeah, exactly. And power, you know, personal power. Every time you do it, I believe we step a bit deeper into our power. It's become a catchphrase. People say, well, you need to be in your power. Oh, he's not really in his power. And I'm sure a lot of people think, well, that's, I sort of see what you mean, but like how we should change it. I think a lot of people do not realize, you know, like how that might be done. But this is exactly an example of that, where every time we do this work and we unravel something really major and we give it a place and we kind of make our peace with it, from that moment onward, that situation has no more power over us, meaning we are more in our power and there's more of us available to bring to the table in the, in the you know, real world, outside world. Yes. And I think also this is where radical responsibility comes in. Oh, yes. Taking responsibility for our stuff. You may not feel like healing it, but look around your family. Who else is going to do it? So I'm very much a subscriber to the 100% responsibility thing. So even if something happens that in a way I've not externally created, at the end of the day, if it's in my line of vision, it's affecting me, it's affecting my family life, there is only one thing for it. That is that I take responsibility for it and that I, you know, find a way of dealing with it. And that's another thing we don't really learn. And, you know, like as children, you know, it's like, oh, that's not fair. You know, it's like life is not fair. But life can be very rich and abundant and magical when we get beyond the notion that everything is going to be fair, which is not going to be. But I find that's what it's whole thing about. It's not fair. I have major issues with that, my younger self. And I constantly think, but that's not fair. And I thought, well, I'm sort of reasoning like a child here. And at some point, just for this whole thing about things being fair or not fair, you know, yes, as a parent, you try to do it with your children. You try to make things fair. And then you realize it becomes so kind of like artificial and they don't encounter it in the world outside as a mother you ask yourself is it even fair to always be fair with my children you know you can go on a sort of kind of trip with that but then when I thought well okay if I make my peace with the fact that for all sorts of very complex karmic ancestral whatever reasons things are not always going to be fair and I release the idea that I want them to be that then I can be more present to what really is now what really is now, this is the modeling play that I'm going to be working with and that I'm going to use to create my reality. Yes. And so I'm just curious, and please feel free if you don't want to answer this, but obviously you have three beautiful boys. So I'm curious how you work with them with shadow work. Are they, are they present and understanding of shadow work in their own lives? Oh, they are actually surprisingly so. Like there's other things they do less well, like taking out the dishwasher or tidying the rooms without being asked. And one is at uni now, he doesn't live with us full time anymore. 
But I remember with my eldest son, at some point when he was in sixth form college, like 18-year-olds before you go to uni, um, I was talking to him like he had some issues in his friendship group and I could sort of hear there was a lot of shadow doing the rounds. And, uh, and he was like really stuck on it. And he said, mom, I know you do these things with students sometimes and I'm not in the class, but I think you probably have something to say about this. I said, Quinn, let me explain the concept of shadow work to you. Are you willing to listen for a moment? So Quinn at that point, 17 or 18, folded his arms and he said, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, something needs to be done here, I'll listen. So I explained the whole thing to him. And he's like, well, that kind of makes sense. We said, how would I apply that then? And said, well, you know, so we used the whole scenario. And I said, well, rather than doing this, you could look at it that way and look at, you know, look at it inside yourself and then meet the person from a different place. And he actually went and he took that back to his friendship groups. And I do quite a lot of it with my youngest son as well. Like my youngest son, Brendan, he really, really knows what shadow work is. So some sort of thing will come up and he'll be in a bad mood. And also to say, and have you done your shadow work on this? He says, you know, I'm trying to, but I need to spend more time on it. <laughs> so in our family life, it's kind of woven in. And even my husband will sometimes say, well, you know, X, Y, Z at work. I say, well, okay, that is the external surface layer. And now the shadow reflection, please. And he'll say, yeah, okay, you're right. And, you know, so we're all a work in progress but i think that is the thing we try to do in this family like many things you know we, we don't do very well but you know like we don't cook very well but i think we do our shadow work <laughs> yes and i think it is just about even in our relationships you know i know with michaela um you know if it gets it doesn't get triggered very often but when he does get triggered and i'm the first one okay let's have a look at the shadow let's let's yeah. go in and let's have a nosy see what's there um, but yes, bringing that into our relationships as well to make other people aware of what's going on and how it's working and how we are interrelating with each other. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, depending who the people are and what the circumstances are, you know, you can say that. I found myself recently, you know, only with people I know very well, but a few, you know, I, I call triggered as usual. And a few times I had to go back to people and I say, you know, that conversation we had, that really brought something up for me. And I actually, you know, had a struggle. I said, you know, I've worked on it now. And, you know, I'd like to tell you what the inside was. And like with the right people, people that you feel safe with or are willing to hear, it can be really amazing because in a moment you do that, they will also say, yeah, well, I, I noticed you could trigger and that made me think what is going on here. And then sometimes they can tell you the matching story. And then you can sort of see, well, like my husband and I will do this, where you say, well, whatever your childhood, my childhood, your profession, my profession, whatever, whatever. And then you sort of see, you know, you see the interlocking of these wheels and you say, ah, you know, there is like a pattern here. And I'll often say to my husband, okay, now we can acknowledge that we're acting out a pattern. Have you seen this pattern before in your family? And he will say, well, actually, I've never thought of this, but now you say this. I have this great out who would have conversations with my mother and get stuck just the way that we got stuck. And then you realize it's beyond the personal, you know, you're dealing with something that's it was going on before you were even born. Yeah. But still, because you're on earth at this moment, you're the person who has the privilege and the, the possibility, the opportunity to actually shift it. And I think this is the magic also in it when we do work with it in relationship, is that obviously we have manifested that moment and also that person to yeah. actually reflect back in that moment something which is deeper, which does need our attention and our healing and our integration. Mm -hmm. And so this is also where co conscious communication comes in. 
being okay. able to have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, and also the, you know, when we do it in shamanic groups, when we teach, we don't do it a lot, you know, out in outside, in the outside world, but, you know, where you allow a person to tell their whole story from A to Z without interrupting. And this is a thing that my husband and I, I mean, not for normal conversation, how was your day, but more when we're working on something, whatever, in our marriage, or something to do with them, you know, like mother, mother-in-law, whatever it is, or something difficult that's come up with the children, whatever. And then sometimes we will do it like in a shamanic course where we'll say, we will agree that first you get to tell the whole story as you perceive it. And I will not come in and say, no, but, and I want it. And, you know, I will like be completely quiet and I will be completely present to what it is that you want to tell me. And then we'll say, are you done now? And, you know, like I say, my husband has just called and say, is this? And he said, yes, I really told you, this is how I see it. And I have nothing to add. I say, okay, so is it okay now for me to tell you how I perceive this same thing? And will you please not interrupt me? And then I have my go. And then, you know, it's just so helpful because it weeds out that whole, you just realize how much of everyday conversation is actually interruption rather than real meaningful soul, soul connection. And, you know, yeah. so that's also recommend as a technique sometimes you know less interruption more deep listening and i think also i oh, sorry in in like shamanic and shamanic work you know this is where we have the talking stick yeah yeah or the clock you know people hate it when i have the clock <laughs> the smaller groups like talking sticks more for a larger group but in the small in the in the smaller groups and you know it's like with the children and my children were really young if i said to them it's seven o'clock i want you to go to bed it became a personal issue. I, I was like the evil mother who wanted them to, and I did want them tucked up and get to my evening. I, you know, it was even true. And then I sort of discovered that actually I need to neutralize this. I'd say to them, look at the clock. Look at it. The clock is telling us it's bedtime. And I wouldn't like it, but they'd go upstairs and go to bed. And there's like something similar there with adults. It's better, you know, to like have a clock in the room and sort of say, you know, it's nothing personal at all. But when the hands of the clock reach this amount of time, I'm going to ring a little bell. Yes. And yes, boundaries. That's where boundaries come from. But also these boundaries are in service. Remember back to things being fair. But like if you teach a large group of people, as I do sometimes, and you can have some talkative people and very, very quiet types and everything in between. Now, if I do not chop up the time and tell people what their, what their budget is, some people will start telling their life story and they'll still be going three hours later. Well, there will not be a workshop if you do that. Well, some of the students get really, they get triggered and then they say, oh, Imelda, you cut me off. You're such a harsh teacher. And I sort of say, do me a favor. I said we had half an hour for sharing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you just kind of count for me how many people are in the room. 15. I said, well, okay, I'm sure you can do basic maths. If this is going to be fair, like how much time do people get? Uh, two minutes. I said, yes. So at two minutes, I showed you the clock and I rang my little bell. You know. yes. <laughs> yes, I think, especially in shamanic work, this is so important, the, the, the clock. I, I just something that just came into mind when I was doing my training. And, you know, he made it very, very clear we had 20 minutes each and we had to narrate it in a, a kind of old, kind of poetic way. Yes. And I'd managed to refine mine to 20 minutes. And then there was another one that was just telling the whole story from beginning to end, which was an hour and a half. 
And so just relating back to that um, yeah. made me really appreciate having that um, that time limit, you know, and, and it's yeah. about boundaries and giving each other space to be able to express what they need to express in that time. Yeah, exactly. And to make it fair, because, you know, in, in any group, say some people will happily talk, but there will also be people who find it hard to talk. But then sometimes you have people like they don't even use the full amount of time, but what they say hits you so hard. It really comes from a very deep place. It's like, wow. This surely is a privilege to be in a room where someone feels that they can say this. And, you know, if I just let the talkers talk the whole time, I'd never get to hear from the quiet people. So it's really important to have that boundary. Yeah. Yes. And also, I think, um, you know, in that group setting, you know, this can also be a really potent place, a potent cauldron for the shadow work to really come in. Because I know it's something that you've talked about, the group shadow. Oh. And, you know, we have to be very aware of this when we are engaging in that kind of work because it always oh, it, does come up. It does come up, but this is the thing, you know, groups need to do shadow work, well, the individuals in that group, but also with other groups. You know, like I've talked about ancestral healing work, but there's also ancestral healing work to be done on how one tribe or one race or one group, one community, like any kind of collective, treats other collectives and then you get the whole thing about you know us and them and you know i belong and you don't or you belong and i'm the outsider and like you know all of these dynamics play out so and this is where you know i want to go with you know i do a lot of like personal uh, ancestral healing work and as you know i teach it as well but at the moment uh, in that work i'm beginning to see if we need to move into a place where we get groups together that commit to doing shadow work with other groups and also i think even just like cleaning up certain political situations like we never do the ancestral healing work on political situations we just stand into a situation that's really entangled and difficult and things have been set in motion then we just do an election and another person comes in we never do the cleaning up work and we never look even like politics has an ancestral dimension where the ancestral politicians who are still in that field so i think you know Ancestral healing work has so many applications and we're only just beginning to scratch them, yet I believe that work desperately needs to be done. Yes, yes, I think that is an aspect that I've never kind of seen before, is that collective, working within the tribes and the groups on the collective. Mm -hmm. um, because it has got so much potential to bring to light some things which we've probably never even seen. No, exactly. And the thing is also, a key thing in shamanic work is you don't need to have the original people present, you know. So, and I think that's one of the teachings of, of family constellations work. But it's not like you say, oh, well, sadly the person is down there, there is nothing we can do. Well, that's not actually the case. A person who is alive today can, if they're willing to do it, go and take the place of that person. You can create a, or say there's, there's someone who's always left out in a family. You can ask a person to sit in a special chair and say, and they're representing you know, all of these people. And it's the same with, say, groups of people. Or if you want to really understand what the underlying dynamics are in a, in, you know, in a situation, if, say, you want to look at a conflict between, you know, Israel and Palestine, or, well, you know, well, think of the U.S. border, or, like, you know, think of any situation in the world. You know, the thing that interests me more and more now is, say, call together a group of people who have some shamanic skills and who have a high level of shadow awareness and then really start working on that. Create some groups, 
have these groups communicate with each other, have them find words for what it is that comes up. And then when they're really, really deep in the work, then ask them what needs to be done here, like to heal this or to unravel this. And there, I think there is so much work to be done there. I sometimes wish I had, had 40 lives, I'm not going to have time to do it all. So I must train people up and you know, get other people doing it. You know? And I think this is really interesting because um, last year I spent some time in Northern Ireland and it was the first time in Northern Ireland. So, you know, I'm a Northern girl, I come from the Northwest of England. Um, but it was really fascinating going into Northern Ireland for the first time because I went in there. I arrived in the country very late at night with all of my conditioning, you know, of the IRA and the troubles and everything else. And it was, it was a really, as a shamanic practitioner, it was a fascinating experience because I was carrying all this baggage. Yeah. Then, actually, when I got there and my first, my taxi driver at like two o'clock in the morning was the most wonderful man. And we were talking about the troubles and it was, it was interesting, you know, having that dialogue without that conditioning. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. I can see how this work is really needed to be able to go in and have that, those conscious conversations to bring more attention and awareness to what's beneath the surface. Yeah, that too. And also to have conversations in the sense of just aware also of how many people know die in our world have died in our world have died under unfair circumstances in our world but that whole thing of this work can be used to give a voice to the dispossessed like say you know going back to the holocaust um, remembrance you know uh, and i have to do it very often in healing work it's like many people you know me Everyone has like wars and genocide and you know if, if you go far enough back in an ancestral field, you know, you couldn't find it. And that's why we cannot say it affected them and it didn't affect us. It is an art ancestral field, you know, it affects all of us. But then also what you can do is you <coughs> you can then give a voice to the people who didn't have a voice, to the people who weren't allowed to speak. And sometimes just for doing that and having a group witnessing that and just sort of, you know, have you know, whatever the situation is you're working with, but have the people who are, couldn't speak, weren't allowed to speak, uh, were killed because they were saying things people didn't want to hear. You give them a voice and you allow that to be spoken in the room. And then you have a group of people really listening to that and say, you know, like, you know, like, you know, you know, I hear you and I'm fully present to you. And um, now I have heard this, I will always be aware of it and I carry this in my heart. And then you just feel the heat go out of the situation. You just feel that, you know, a large degree of peace starts to settle on the situation. Yeah. And yeah. I, um, it comes to mind the, up, up, I can never say the word, the Apopono, which um, the Jessica Apopono. should know about this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Hawaiian prayer. You know, it's a really beautiful way to honour and to sit with and to give gratitude and to also apologize at the same time. Yeah, and that should be like shadow work. I try to use it as a mantra running under my breath. Like even like, you know, for even things again that aren't my personal fault in a direct way, but also to kind of to not have like a hierarchy of what requires an apology. Sometimes we think, oh, there's so much going on in the world, like can I really focus on the really bad stuff? And actually I find that to be fully present in my life, if I say I'm walking up the street and I see a parent being really harsh with a very young child, 
that's probably not the worst crime that's going on in London, UK right now. Nevertheless, I witnessed that. That made me connected to the situation. And it's not for me. I cannot apologize on behalf of the parent to the child. But I can still, as a witness to the situation, more apologize to the universe and ask that the apology goes where it is needed. The spirits will deliver it. I'm not in control of that. But I can still say, you know, you know, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me. I love you. And thank you that I was given the opportunity to be in the situation and say that prayer. Yes, and I think also that's really interesting because, you know, when we do see the mother shouting at the child in the street and then using that um, apology kind of, you know, I'm sorry, but then also seeing what our judgment of that situation was without knowing the backstory is kind of also apologizing for our reaction to it, which may have been unconscious. Exactly, exactly. And I'm sticking with this like small example because you see that sometimes. Now, it's so easy if you've had a good night's sleep and you've had breakfast and you have a home to go to, to judge a parent being harsh of a child in the street. But, you know, like on another level, I do the shadow work on that. I remember those days, I, my, our middle son for a year screamed all night, every night. And I had a hyperactive first son and I was pregnant with the third son. So there was not, not much sleep for that year. And I still remember like walking around in this haze of exhaustion and even a smallest tasks became really insurmountable and I tried to keep three boys safe. You know, now later I think, my Lord, how did it's a miracle they're all, all still alive today. You know, how did I do it? But the thing is, if I can just like go to that memory, if I see a parent being harsh with a child in the street, well, no, they may have had really bad news. They may not have slept properly for a week. They may be worrying how they're going to pay the gas bill and it is January in the Northern Hemisphere. Like, you know, we do not have all the information in a situation. And going within ourselves and accessing that, you know, it also, like, you know, we kind of also apologize to the parent. We can do the oponopono and apologize to the parent. It's not just, like, for the child. But it's like that the child and the parent find themselves in such a difficult situation, you know, where this occurs. But that's kind of like you can, it's learning to say the prayer and, to be witness to that and also to be witness to the discomfort in that and yet do it by being judgmental but saying as I happen to be standing here I need to be the one who speaks the prayer. Yes yes, and that goes back then to um, responsibility, taking responsibility. Yes, the 100% responsibility, yeah. yeah. And you know and I also like these um, you know these little moments in life that we see on a day-to-day basis when we're out because it always reminds me that nothing is ever as it seems. No, that is true. It's always surface level. It's true, but also all these little things you see around you in some, in some way, and I don't want to sound like an egomaniac or a narcissist, but in some way it is always us as well. I sometimes have days where I walk around and I think, you know, I was the mother pushing that baby in the pram. You know, I was that man kicking a tree. Like, you know, like I was that person like walking on the bridge thinking really nasty thoughts about someone else. Like I have been all of these people and more. They all on some level live in me. And by appearing around me, they give me that opportunity to yet again try to become more conscious. Yeah, I'm more conscious saying that how every scenario we see in the street or wherever, how every person we meet always in some way reflects back that little part of us. 
So in a way, you could almost say that just walking around London is a form of soul retrieval. So to speak, speak in a slightly silly way here, but I mean what I say in the sense of that, you know, even every stranger you see on the railway platform reflects something back at me. And I can either receive that or I can like not be open to that and, and, and like walk away from that. You know, even that thing where you get on a train and everyone is on their phone and no one looks at each other is kind of... When have I made myself completely unresponsive when a person really wanted to talk to me? You know, and I know I do that all the time. I run for cover. I want my space. So it's kind of like in all of these things, there is that lesson to take away. And there is an opportunity to, um, you know, to do healing work, to say, you know, to say a prayer where you ask for forgiveness. Yeah. You know? And it, becomes, it does actually become a form of curiosity, what I found over the years with shadow work is that okay it's not very um it's not all love and laughter when we're in it no um, but it's also you know curiosity so when i do get triggered you know it's kind of like oh what's that triggered in me let's go in and have a look let's go and find out let's sit with it for a moment and so it, it doesn't become fun but it becomes such a natural way of engaging our imagination and our curiosity to find out what's beneath the surface Absolutely. And then also there's the thing like every time you get triggered is also a gift. I don't just find I get triggered because my involvement with something or my expectation is still too high. And then I get triggered again. And I'm getting quite tired of being triggered by this. And then I think like, what is it I need to change here? And sometimes like, I need to actually, I seem to have this crazy high expectation of a person or of a group. And it's kind of like, this is just like, this, this is making my life difficult. And sometimes I just, I make agreements with myself. I sometimes write contracts with myself and I write it down on a piece of paper and I sign it. I now agree with myself that I will no longer expect this of myself. I now agree with myself. I'm going to try much harder to respond like that the next time this happens. And then, of course, and then I go and half of it goes wrong. But I also think that suddenly go right and I think, yeah, and I've taken a step forward, you know. And the rest will continue working with it. You will undoubtedly get triggered in the same way again, you know. The universe is so kind. It gives us all of these repeat tests. Yes, over and over again. And we'll keep having the test until we pass it. Yes, exactly. And then when you pass it, you get the next test. <laughs> yes, the next test. And it will, there, will, there, will, there will always be a test. There will always be this a test. It's always guaranteed. For life and beyond, yes. Um, so I'd just like to ask you, you know, you've got your new book coming out at, in, during this year, I believe, Imagination. Um, um, what was it called? Medicine of the Imagination. Please, would you just share with us a little bit about that? Well, this was the book that I had not planned to write. Uh, I started writing it on the day that I'd sent uh, all the edits for book number two, that's the Sacred Art book, off to the publisher. And I'd really looked forward to it. I thought, oh, I'm going to have paintings on, I'm going to meet friends for tea. I thought it'd be so nice not to be writing a book. So I went to bed, it was even the night before. So it came in the morning and literally as I sent the one set of, you know, you have to like sign off on the edits for a book and then the publisher takes over. And I really thought, how? I'm going to go to my studio and paint. And the spirits came and said very loudly, like, no, 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 no. Now there is this book you need to write. And it's called, um, you know, Medicine of the Imagination, Dwelling in Possibility. And I really thought, what on earth do they mean by that? And then there was this whole thing that you can't really use the word medicine. At least I've trained in the U.S. I was always told medicine is only for medical doctors. But then I thought, now here in the U.K., people will speak of story medicine and, you know, things like that. 
And uh, then I just said to this person, well, I have no idea what this book is supposed to be about. And then they started telling me, and they said, I will give you more information if you start writing it. But this book needs to be written, like, now. Now is the time. So I went back to my computer, and I started writing another book. <laughs> but really what it is, it's about the right use of the human imagination. Because you know, we all have, we are all given the gift of imagination. But we receive very little lessons, if any, in like how to really focus our imagination and how to harness it. And the thing is that our imagination can also get quite active, independent of us. You know, it can keep all programming going. Or if we do not sort of monitor how many kind of like sort of, you know, unkind or dirty thoughts we have, it can start creating quite a lot of, you know, toxic, polluted outcomes. And I sort of find, especially in the world out there, even just walk around the streets and you hear the way people talk, you know, you think, you just see it being set up and people are not using their imagination correctly. It's like this incredibly powerful mu muscle we are flexing. And actually while writing that book, I learned that just as we speak of like, you know, being fit, like going to a fitness club or going running and being physically fit. And I'm talking about being emotionally fit or being fit to be a parent or whatever. There's also such a thing as, you know, um, the right use of the, of the human imagination. So that's what the book became. It's a, a passionate plea for a right use of the human imagination. And actually really consciously using that incredibly, it's, it's one of the most powerful tools we have in creating and co-creating the world and our relationship within that world. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And like you said, timely. Yeah, yeah. I sort of now understand even better now because I started writing this, this two years ago because it takes a year for a book to go from being submitted to becoming a book in the shops. And uh, now, even more so than two years ago, I really understand like what I wrote, what the Spirit asked me to write, makes more sense to me now than it did two years ago. But I now realize it had to be written for this year. But of course, the publishing being what it is, you write it two years earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's actually quite interesting because I've, I've noticed the same in my own process is that, you know, it was never meant to be then. No. Um, it was meant to be now, you know, so you kind of yeah. put things off and you think, okay, it's me because I've not got discipline or I'm not doing my work or whatever it is. But actually, there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah, there, is, there really is a defined timing to that. I mean, you work in a spirit-led way, as I know you do. It's like it's another of these things we have to release, you know, like, yes, we've got to commit to it and do the work. But like we are not completely in charge of the timing or the spirits will come with ideas we hadn't even considered. So I also find that it's very much it has to be done in that kind of partnership. And like one of the things that I have had to learn is to do all these things that the spirits ask, not really knowing how it's going to end or even if it will end well. And yet not being in control of the outcome. And like, I'm a control freak, I like things tidy, I like to know what my end destination is going to be. So this is challenging for me, but also like, as I'm learning to do it, I also realize I get less uptight about things that go so-called like wrong, but often like what looks wrong to us, you know, in our everyday eyes. Much later, you sort of see there was still like a purpose or a trajectory to that. And now when things go wrong or I get interrupted or a disruption occurs or a change of plans, I think, oh, interesting. Like, I wonder what the spirits are trying to orchestrate. Or I wonder what's going on here. And rather than sort of going and imposing my will on it, I'm going to 
make this happen no matter what. It's more like, okay, take a step back. Maybe now is not the time. You know, and life becomes more playful and more, you know, dynamic. Yes, and also that opening of trust. You yeah. know, there is something bigger than us working its way through, and it's not all down to us. You know, it's, everything has its time and its place. Yes, and also it's not just me in the world. There's also like you and all other people, and, you know, there's also that whole sort of ego thing to say, like, ultimately I'm a very small cog, but I do have my place in this sort of larger watch that is the world. And I have to keep my wheel turning. But also to say, sometimes there will be things that I do not understand that are going to like block my path for a while. And then it is trust. Like, I don't need to understand what that cosmic wheel is. You know, all I just need to learn is to be flexible and say, okay, if this is not a year, maybe next year. If now is not the time, then I'll go and do something else today. And rather than working myself up and forcing outcomes. Because then I, as a very tiny human being and try to force my will on the world but i'm not acting in true partnership with everything else that is in the world yes and and having that flexibility to kind of flow with it wherever it needs to flow to in that given moment yes and i always remember you know one of the most useful pieces of advice i or i received was sometimes you only have trust and the present moment yeah and you just gotta go with it Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think this also helps us to get out of the head and how, out of that one who wants to control and to be more fluid. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's an ongoing thing. You don't learn it in one moment, do you? This is like a lifelong commitment to, you know, remind yourself of that and, oh, here we have arrived at that point again. Yeah. Here, but I just trust that this serves a purpose, even though I cannot see how, you know. Yes, we don't know how, but we will trust anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so that's wonderful. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to open the floor and let's hand over to question time. Oh, I had a question going back to the ancestral healing. Yeah. You mentioned what you made one statement. You said perhaps you're still holding energy that needs to be healed. Okay. Now, does that mean energy where... Like I, as a per, as that being, was wounded in some way, or is it the energy of the other person that I'm holding? It's well, it could be either thing. But if we're talking about ancestral healing, it could be, for instance, if say, say you had an ancestor a number of generations ago, you never met him, and say that. This person had really wanted to be a doctor or an artist, but say World War War World War War came and they had to enlist and they died young. So this unlived dream of being an artist or a doctor like lives on. And then sort of say, you don't really sort of know this, but on another level you're the one now carrying this. And then it may be that you live with this sense that like, you know. Maybe you became a medical doctor and actually you know you knew it wasn't really your thing and you ask yourself why did I do this? Or maybe you have the vague feeling that you should be a healer and you are not and you go on healing courses. Or maybe you you really had wanted to be an artist, but you carry that sense of unfulfillment. So though you always tell yourself, I'm gonna do a course in art and gonna learn how to paint. You never yeah. get into the course, so there's always an interruption in your life and you don't. And you don't get there. 
all of these things can be manifestations that are, it is absolutely you. This is something that is really real for you, but it is mm -hmm. equally real in terms of your ancestral memory. So mm. that's it. Like you carry it and it belongs to you and only you can resolve it. But on another level, what you carry there, it was already in existence before you were born. You're also carrying the unresolved things of your ancestors. I see, I see. And the reason I ask that is um, I've been really coming into clarity with uh, this like anger and rage uh, energy that I've been feeling for a long time. And I always thought it was crone energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And what I'm realizing, and I found out the other day just randomly that it, you know, it's like uh, the goddess Kali energy. Oh, wow. And I, yes. And I've been carrying that forever and trying to understand why. And, and so I'm doing uh, shadow work with Nicola, and we're unraveling a lot of wounds, which create natural anger and rage. But I'm still feeling, and, 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 so, and then there's the Kali energy in and of itself, maybe mm -hmm. in response to what's going on around me. Yeah. But I'm still, but I'm wondering, uh, because, well, I'm wondering, I know the ancestors I've known in my life, like my father, everybody was angry in some way. Yeah. Could, I be, could I be carrying their anger too? And if that's the case, how do I discern that? And maybe just kind of like get rid of that stuff, you know, like maybe it's an ancestral <laughs> healing. Yes. I mean, I'm, yeah. Well, you but, know, yeah. Yeah, well, I think what it sounds to like me, and I said, I'm not a practitioner on the case, but I'm listening to you. And what it sounds to me like, if you're, you're, you're saying that so many people in my feeling carry real anger, and possibly it seems out of proportion to what's going on in their life at that time, then it seems to me that anger is an energy that's still left in your ancestral fields. And if so many people feel it, maybe for not a very obvious reason, I would say it sounds like there is a lot of anger in your ancestral field that went unexpressed. People who were very angry and weren't hurt. People were very angry and they died without, without that being resolved. So what I would then do is, well, then you, know, you can work on your own or if it gets very overwhelming, it's better to work with a shamanic practitioner or someone like, you know, understands ancestral healing work. But okay. what I would then do is... Um, like really say okay anger is so present i need to make anger an honored guest so if this was going on in my life i might even build a small altar and along with a candle put things on it that for me represent anger and i'd really say anger you know rather than pushing you away and being annoyed that you're here this is only like for this week and then we close to work because i don't want to live like this forever but like for a week say whatever is an acceptable amount of time for you i say I treat you like an honored guest in my house. I'm going to make time every day to really connect with you and to hear what it is you want to say. And then I want to, you know, go with that. And then maybe, you know, also pay a lot of attention to my dreams. And maybe I'd find myself dreaming about scenarios that my ancestors faced. And, you know, then I would speaking those words, you know, prayers and words of apology. And I would make sort of, you know, offerings. I'd, you know, Maybe even see if there was a positive resolution to it. That might be, say, by the end of the week when you've done lots and lots of work on this in lots of different ways. I would sort of say, okay, I've been carrying this anger in a kind of like dysfunctional manner in the sense that I've not understood it and I've not used the energy of that constructively. But now I understand much better, you know, what created this built up of anger in my family. 
And I said, can I agree with all of you, those who are not here anymore, how I interview this productively? And then the guidance may, for instance, come that you are to be a mouthpiece for those for whom it's not safe to express their anger, or that you make art uh, in which anger is the center piece, that you will have an exhibition of that work, and really say, this is all about anger. Or maybe the group, where you call other women together and you say, now we're going to do some work here where we really, all of us talk about anger and anger isn't pushed away, but it's given space in the room. But there would be a million ways of working with that. But does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And the million ways too. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Thank good. you for that. That's great. And good luck with that. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Fun work, yeah. Yeah. I really related to so much of what you share and let me see if I can get out of the light a little um, and I, I mean I'm kind of wondering if you could um, speak a little bit about the situation that I've just found myself in that you know many of us go through of just really coming I went and I got really deep into feeling a lot of my family patterns over the past new the full moon and really got to this place of um, just seeing how it, it peaked so strongly in me, feeling um, so much of the suffering that's gone on in my family. And yeah. this very, um, just feeling so much sadness in a moment on the full moon that had been building over a couple of weeks because I was like really in the concentration of feeling it and how I've lived it out in my life and every the family members around me. And literally, I woke up the next morning with flu symptoms mm. that lasted weeks, has now turned into a pneumonia. So I've been almost three weeks now in this very reflective place of look what these vibrations have, how they manifested so clearly yeah. in my physical to be even, um, you know, really kind of like took me down to do nothing else but reflect on the past weeks. So I've had um, quite a few conversations with Nicola and she's really suggested a lot of things to um, move through this time, but I'm wondering um, what your perspective is around just transmuting this energy within and because I can really still feel it in my lungs and, yeah. you know, yeah, and I can feel it just hearing you talk. The thing that I do for myself is that I feel that um, a lot of things are very symbolic. So, for instance, I had a big chest infection over the Christmas period. And then for me, the question becomes that, you know, why is it in my chest and not somewhere else? Like something seeks expression. So I was like, pay attention to like what it is. And for me, a chest infection, and I think pneumonia is, is a chest infection, um, it carries connotations of not being able to breathe or maybe not being given enough space or, um, you know, like issues of support and, and oxygen, like am I inhaling, am I bringing into myself what I need, what I need to provide the output I need to give. And then really, really sitting with that, for me, sometimes there have been lessons around like I need to slow down uh, my schedule or maybe there are some commitments I need to cancel. 
or maybe there are some people I need to talk to and sort of say, I actually need you to give me some more space. And what I find when I start working on that symbolic level, then often the physical symptoms start to shift as well. And you could also go deeper with that and say, if it's so closely connected to your family, that's almost like what Pauline was asking a moment ago and say, you know, because as you speak, I really hear like the, the weight of the suffering in your family. And then maybe I would ask on that level, like, you know, uh, are there people in my family alive today or people who are no longer with us who maybe felt they weren't given the space to breathe properly or to express who they really were in the world? And then I sort of, you know, feel into that. And if I felt there is some charge there, then I would try to find ways of performing a ceremony and doing that, you know, to say, um, well, it would depend on, on, the, on the, the kindness that came, but I would take that into a ceremonial space. Uh, I would also, um, I know you're in Hawaii, a beautiful location, spend time outside. And like if I have a chest infection, I know I need to speak to the wind and to the element of air and sort of ask why is it so difficult for me to breathe right now. So I would make a whole map of all these like possibilities and all the things it might be telling me. And then I would use shamanic means and ceremony to work on all of those angles at the same time. I don't know if that is helpful. I think that something has something is very much in my sphere of attention at the moment. So I'm approaching my 43rd birthday and there's been a very significant pattern between me and my parents all of my adult life connected with money and um so really me taking too much money and being dependent financially during times when it's not appropriate for me to be financially dependent and there are obviously well obviously to you Imelda there are other circumstances like being left as the sole carer to my children that mean I've needed more help than I would have done with a you know a good solid partner yeah but it has really been brought into the family sphere in quite a um, dramatic way because of not having a, a stable place to live and I, I'm just thinking like I, I'm really really aware that what it's representing for me is actually a chance to break this pattern because I think it's especially me and my mother that we're actually both in it so mm -hmm. it's quite a codependent pattern where I don't quite push myself out enough and gather the money myself because I know that she'll help me and it's getting to that point where she's saying I've helped you enough um, which is probably quite healthy and I don't quite know where I'm going with this but it just feels like I, this is in our ancestral field and I know I'm being presented it feels quite difficult it feels a bit like ah where are we going to live how am I going to pay for the children to stay at school and um, and all these things that I've I've not been good at attending to um, but it does feel like I'm being presented right now with this opportunity and that it's a it's a much older thing than me and 
than probably even me and my mother. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, um, so, and you know, I know you have trained in ancestral healing work. I also know when you have four children running around, it can be hard to really find the time to focus or anything for very long. I appreciate that as well. Um, as you were talking, I'm like fully appreciating how challenging this is. I mean, this is a very, very, you know, as I said, you know, not knowing what your permanent home is going to be. And then, you know, like, you know, the partner has left the picture for children. Uh, you know, your mother becoming older and, you know, having health problems. I mean, there's an awful lot going on in this situation. Um, but I would sort of say that I'm also hearing, as it was with the other speakers, that I think something is being played out here that it goes back to before your birth and probably your mother's birth. And that is something worth looking at. So that's like a thing I would, a line of investigation. Another thing that I'm also very much hearing is that in its purest sense, money is a form of energy exchange. Now, I know like, it's used in all sorts of other ways in our society, but in its sort of purest form, money is meant to facilitate a neutral flow of energy. So hearing you speak for me, the question also comes, like when your mother says, like, I've had enough in terms of giving you money, and I'm like hearing that on the everyday level, but I'm sort of wondering, is your mother maybe not even consciously communicating that there is another energetic exchange that is not in balance? And I appreciate that in the current circumstances, for you to just say, I give my mother a big pot of money is not a realistic solution. Yeah. Uh, but to sort of think, is there another way in which your mother is needful of energy? And I mean energy in a form that you are able to give and that, you know, does not take essential things away from the four children you're responsible for. Because I can be feeling that there is something larger being brought to attention here and that there is a core issue, a core imprint or issue in your relationship. You might maybe all have them. It's not only you. We're not talking about your scenario. And that, you know, it's very easy to go to the hopeless ways where you think this is completely unsolvable, I'm going to get depressed. But the other way of saying it is to take a step back and say, my mother and I have reached this point now where she has indicated that a line is drawn, and this is very, very difficult. So it's also, she's also indicating that she's like open to change, and that something is like bothering her enough to, to draw this line. So something coming to attention. I think there needs to be both, you know, like a healing, but there also needs to be an energetic renegotiation. And that is the question that I, if I were you, I would be asking myself where, and I forget about money for a month, probably not, you know, money is not the area where you can fix this. But is there in some other way or form, where does there need to be an energetic renegotiation or where needs energy in whatever form need to flow from me to my mother so that my mother no longer feels that she's the, um, well, the piggy bank, as it were. She's that something that's Now, how can you heal and address that? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I, can't, I can't really begin to say how... Um, how much I needed to hear that said to me in that way tonight. Thank you so so much, and and I and I agree totally. But it's useful to have that idea of um, 
the renegotiation so and a, and a rebalancing of it thank you so much imelda yeah and especially yeah not not to think of it as money like put money back in its original form energy exchange yeah well imelda thank you so much and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom your light your darkness mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. totality of you it's really been an honor to sit to sit in circle again yes mm -hmm. i really you know i really loved getting your invitation and i was definitely going to commit to doing it so i'm like really happy to have been here with all of you tonight and so you know for the invitation also thank you for a night spent in this beautiful be it virtual company but nevertheless it is a circle as you say so thank you to all of you for, for being and bringing thank you yourself mm -hmm. yes it's you. been a pleasure and thank you all ladies for joining us because thank you, this is the whole point is to bring conversation to other people not just two-sided yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to the feminine principle podcast if you have enjoyed listening and received value from this episode, then please consider supporting the work to create a circle of reciprocal generosity. The link is below with love and gratitude.